It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That created stock with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself to the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Speed it up and I've seen got no seats. I'll land a fucking platter with a fear fight down. I fire in a fire with a sister of a gang from the government for hiring a combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom! Hey friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a powerful paragon of patriotism in a pretty petulant world. <laughs> I'm Joel MD, also known... a lot of peas. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm lucky I didn't, you know, spit all over myself. <laughs> I will attest that you did not. Good. <laughs> I'm Joalton MD, also known as Dr. Bones of DoomandBloom.net, where you'll find more than 750 videos, podcasts, and other kinds of great stuff on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a man on a mission, and that's to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. Absolutely, and I'm Amy Alton. I'm also known as Nurse Amy, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostest, the blonde bombshell with a terrific set of morals. That's right. That's right. Together, we are the watchers <laughs> on the wall, and we watch it all for you to keep you, to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a larcenous llama? Our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only, and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right, but we're here to help if it isn't. What do you think of that? <laughs> yes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> hey, what's the stuff, McDuff? We learn as much from you as you do from us, so connect with us. It's easy. Here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. It is so easy. Just send us an email. To drbonespodcast at aol.com. That's drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can also send us a Twitter at Prepper Show. A tweet. A, I think is what it's called. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all these newfangled words. Newfangled. All right. <laughs> but you could follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. You can also join our Facebook group, which is fantastic because we have lots and lots of people who 
talk amongst themselves, ask questions, and answer it for each other. Lots of good information there. Absolutely. Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. A couple of Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom, and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Our YouTube channel has hundreds, hundreds of videos. Well, more than 100 at least. More than 100. <laughs> Almost. Well, we're really getting up there. Yeah, we are. But anyway, they're educational and sometimes they're fun to watch. But the channel is Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. We also have a video cast on the first and third Wednesday of every month at aroundthecabin.com. And you know, that that's a lot. And Holy it's a, That's a live chat room. You can talk amongst yourself or ask us questions and live on air we will answer them that's right that's right and by the way check out our articles in leading magazines like survival quarterly american survival guide backwoods home prepare survivalist wow a Sur survivor's edge survivor's edge right. shooter well all over the place and of course in links from a thousand great preparedness websites throughout the internet now, in the news, a new mosquito-borne virus makes its way across the Atlantic. Federal health officials are debating whether to warn pregnant women against travel to Brazil and other Latin American and Caribbean countries, countries right. right, where mosquitoes are spreading the Zika virus, Z-I-K-A, <laughs> which has been linked to brain damage in newborn babies. Horrible. Officials say it could be the first time the Centers for Disease, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention advise pregnant women to avoid a specific region during an outbreak. The Zika virus first appeared on the South American continent in May of last year. Although it often causes only mild rashes and fevers, women who have had it, particularly in the first trimester of pregnancy, appear to be much more likely to have children born with small heads and damaged brains, a condition called microcephaly. They've had thousands of cases of that. That's right. Uh, the Zika virus uh, has been found in tissue from four Brazilian infants, two of which had microcephaly and died shortly after birth, and two of which, two of whom, died in the womb. Now, microcephaly has several other causes, of course, genetic defects, and there are other viruses that cause it, like German measles, <clears throat> rubella, or cytomegalovirus during pregnancy. Now, samples from the fetuses look like what you see if an infection was the cause. Previously, Brazilian scientists found the virus in tissue or amniotic fluid from three other fetuses, and they're investigating more than 3,500 cases, just as you said, yep. of microcephaly in newborns until last year. They normally only had about 150 cases of this problem each year. Now, the travel advice would most obviously apply to Brazil, which is struggling with the alarming <coughs> surge in newborns with it, but it could soon apply to much of tropical Latin America and the Caribbean. And it has spread northward to other countries in the Americas as well, including Mexico. The virus is carried by the mosquitoes that uh, cause yellow fever and also the Asian tiger mosquito, which was a recent import, which we've written about in the past at doomandbloom.net, both of these species are now found in the U.S., and a few cases of Zika virus have been found here, including one in Texas last week. However, all were in people who had just returned from overseas. No transmission within the 50 states has been found. Now, there's been one case confirmed in Puerto Rico, but because testing is rare, I mean, many cases involve mild or no symptoms, doctors are assuming that there are many, many more. Now, 
if you're trying to have children or you're pregnant in these areas, uh, there are some virologists that are already warning women about it. If, if one of them said, the dean, as a matter of fact, of the National School for Tropical Medicine at Baylor in Texas says that if my daughter was planning to get pregnant, I'd say don't go to the Caribbean. And that's not great for Caribbean tourism, but we can't wait to act for nine, until nine months when these things start popping up down here. Now, there isn't any vaccine for Zika, but the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease has been working on one for the past month, says the Institute's director, and hopefully there'll be something that will be able to protect women that travel to other countries. Absolutely. Now, the problem is Florida is a big breeding ground for, for tropical diseases. You're oh, absolutely right. And a lot of times they'll pop up here yeah. into Florida now, very this, easily. Right. Last year, the chikungunya virus, <clears throat> uh, which is another mosquito-borne virus, uh, popped up here. There was quite a, quite a number of cases, including some cases that were not from people that were traveling to tropical countries. So this is something that you might just see uh, not too uncommonly in the future. Well... I'm not sure they're flying here, but they could be getting on boats that are traveling here, freighter boats, or they could also be hopping on some cruise ships. Yep, you're absolutely right. And traveling right. over here. That's the scary thing. Now, other things that are happening in the news is that mm -hmm. this year we have found that there's been a major drop in the stock market. Oh, please. And it has really hit it looks a lot really, of investors really hard. Scary. And it looks scary. And it, it is due to issues relating to uh, the low prices of oil. Uh, there's sort of a crash in those prices and also conditions in China and other countries that are right. bad, bad, bad. I mean, the China, uh, even though we've dropped more than 2% this year in terms of our uh, Dow Industrial Index, mm -hmm. the, China, I think, has dropped more than 7% yeah. and, and does so sometimes on a, day, on a particular day. So it is pretty amazing and we have actually our good friend jim rawls of survival blog and granddaddy of all survival blogs <laughs> and he is going to talk with me for just a few minutes about what's going on in terms of economy and economic issues that may be a problem in the near future hey jim are you there yes i am Go ahead, Joe. First off, thank you very much for taking time out to speak with me. It seems like every day there's some incredible news story, and I guess the one today is going to be the stock market. Yes, uh, we've seen the, the markets down substantially today, and I think that's uh, attributable to a number of different things. Uh, most immediately, of course, has been the collapse in the commodities market with oil leading the, the problem. But overall, I think it's a sign of a slowdown in the global economy. Uh, we're definitely in at least a short-term deflationary cycle, and I predict that we're going to see a continuation of that perhaps for a year or two, and then we'll probably see through government reaction or overreaction a hyperinflationary exit to that problem, and it'll be very ugly. The people of the United States are going to basically be caught in a whipsaw, first with inflation and then with mass inflation. And unfortunately, regardless of how people invest their money, they're going to get hurt by either the, the deflation or the inflation. 
And the very best thing they can do is to diversify and get themselves into practical tangibles. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, we have been talking about the risk of a hyperinflationary period for, for some time in our community. What makes you believe that this is going to be the actual circling the drain of, of the economy this time around? Well, it may not necessarily be this this time around. We may actually see a short-term recovery. But in the long term, I think that some sort of uh, collapse is inevitable, and it's going to take down whole currencies and whole national governments with it when it's before it's all over, simply because of the absolute mountain of debt, both public debt and private debt, that has been built up over the last 30 years. So it's inevitable we're going to see a collapse, but don't underrate the ability of governments to kind of prop things up as long as possible. And I think that's always in the best interest of anyone who's in government to see that happen, and they're doing their best to make that happen right now with the zero interest rate policy and what's turning into a negative interest rate policy in a lot of countries. A lot of countries is actually what I was just about to mention. This seems to be a global thing. People in China aren't doing much better than anybody else. I don't think there's anyone that's really immune. No, really, uh, because when you come right down to it, Joe, virtually everyone on the planet is living under a currency regime where they have unredeemable currency that are not backed by specie. If a currency is not backed by gold or silver, it really isn't real money. It's not a true currency. It's just a fiat currency because of that, because we're all equally oppressed under these fiat currency systems. The entire population is going to be at great risk of what's about to happen. You mentioned getting tangible assets, and by that, you obviously mean gold and silver, but I, I think we're also talking about food. We're talking about items for oh, sure. personal defense. Yes, uh, the, the really practical tangibles are going to be the ones that will carry us through to live on a day-to-day -day basis through both a deflationary collapse and then the inevitable inflationary exit that's going to follow. And the best way that people can position themselves is to get out of dollars, get out of the stock market, get out of all dollar-denominated assets, and instead put their wealth into the form of productive farmland, guns, common caliber ammunition, silver, perhaps some gold, and practical supplies for earning a living and for protecting and providing for their family. And that means things like medical supplies, storage food, communications equipment, and so forth. All Everything that they will need to live independently for an extended period of time, because that's what this will probably come down to. Well, you know what's going to happen is we'll be in essentially a barter economy, and I think when Amy had you on uh, not too long ago, we talked about barter. I think you had mentioned a few things that you felt were superior barter items. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that again. Well, as I mentioned last time, I think common caliber ammunition is probably one of your best bets. Because to be a ideal barter currency unit, something has to be very durable, it has to be desirable, and it has to be divisible. And ammunition is perfect for that because if it's stored properly in, air, in a watertight container, 
ammunition can be stored for well over 100 years and still go bang every time you pull the trigger. It usually comes in boxes of 20 or 50 cartridges, and those boxes can be divided. So you wouldn't necessarily have to, wouldn't have to trade a full box of cartridges uh, to buy a loaf of bread. You could just hand someone a handful of cartridges and complete the transaction. That makes a lot of sense. You can imagine that I would recommend seeing, uh, some medical supplies as well as barter items. Using your formula, which I think we should call the three Ds of uh, Jim Rawls, durable, de- desirable, and divisible, I would see things like gauze dressings. Uh, certainly, uh, they come, uh, and many of our kits come with bricks of uh, 200 dressings. And they're certainly divisible. They're certainly durable. They'll pretty much last forever. They're made of the stuff that Egyptian mummies are wrapped in, so that makes sense. And they'll certainly be desirable if you need to deal with wounds. I think that that's I think that's an excellent formula, and I'm surprised other people haven't really talked about that in such detail. Yes, I would just warn your listeners to be careful about overstocking on adhesive bandages because. Of course, those adhesives dry out and they lose their adhesion power. But of course, uh, also, uh, even if you have an adhesive bandage, you can reinforce it with surgical tape. And even a a 20-year-old Band-Aid will will do the trick. Awesome advice. And uh, you've been giving it for many years, probably pretty much. You're the grandfather of of all survival blogs. And uh, tell us a little bit about how Survival Blog has been going in recent recent times. Well, uh, Survival Blog has now been published for 10 years. In fact, we just produced our 10-year anniversary archive DVD. And uh, we now have thousands and thousands of articles and letters. I think it's well in excess of 20,000 that are now archived. And those archives are all available free online. But I do recommend that people take the time to go through the archives and save the most important articles to a memory stick. Uh, Or if you don't have the time to do that, that you uh, just buy our complete archive DVD and keep that on hand uh, so you'll have it available for reference even if the power grid goes down. And I should mention that one of those articles was our first article back many years ago about fish antibiotics and expiration dates. And so we really appreciate, Jim, your introducing us to the preparedness community. Later in the show, we'll be talking with Jim again about his novel, Land of Promise, the beginning of a new series for him. And we'll talk about the basic premise of the novel, which is a Christian homeland. Very, very interesting. Okay, well, you know what? I want to talk a little bit today about penetrating trauma, knife and bullet wounds, things like that. Scary stuff. That's right. Now, knife and bullet wounds are different than, say, uh, an industrial accident and in that you're likely going to be in an area where a hostile action is occurring or has occurred. Mm-hmm. Now, the first and most important goal of the medic is self-preservation. I have to emphasize that because becoming the next casualty doesn't do anybody any good especially yourself, so don't attempt to render aid unless you have abolished all threats to your own life. You know, in a firefight, this means that you probably should be armed and prepared to return fire to suppressive fire or however you need to abolish the threat so that you can care for those that have been injured. Now, you may have seen movies where a hero kills a villain instantly by throwing a knife at them or maybe even shooting them with a gun. This is a highly improbable event. 
I've actually read where having a gunshot or being shot with a bullet is pretty much the same amount of force in terms of stopping power if you're if you're not hit in of course in the heart or the brain mm-hmm. as having a 10 pound weight dropped on you from the height of a few inches and indeed that sort of makes sense because we see so many times uh if you look at these cop shows and things like that that if, if somebody actually gets shot and they just run away or they keep coming. They keep going. Yeah. And you think, well, how many bullets is it going to take to make the person fall on the ground? That's right. So don't be surprised if somebody who gets stabbed walks around with a knife in their back, at least for a while, or, or gets shot even. And so this is a pretty amazing thing that I think a lot of people don't really realize that, you know, you have to really be hit. In a major artery, the heart, you know, you know, really have to have a torso, you know, a a central body mass shot through the head uh, to really stop somebody. Now, if you're the medic, of course, and somebody is in this situation, they've been shot or they they have a knife in them and they're walking around. I mean, have them lie down immediately because at one point or another, they'll lose enough blood that they will faint, you know, from loss of blood and they'll fall onto a hard surface. They'll hurt themselves. Even more. Yes, that's right. Now, where there's one injury, there could be more. So always have an EMT shears or a bandage scissors to cut through clothing and determine that you only have the one wound. Now, if the bleeding from the obvious wound is the most is serious, but there are other wounds that are less serious, of course, you should attend to the most serious wound first. And we talked about dealing with hemorrhages before. Right. Let me just say one thing. Every drop of blood that you keep in the person is another drop of blood carrying oxygen to the vital organs. So that is your goal. Stop the bleeding. That's right. Now, of course, in normal times, standard protocol says you should not remove a knife or other impaled object simply because it can cause the hemorrhage to worsen. And, of course, in these cases... The knife could be up against an artery that might be bleeding somewhat, but if you remove the dam that's holding back the water, then it may begin to gush. So there is a logical um, rationale behind not removing these objects until you can get to the hospital. But, of course, we are talking about situations where there may not be hospitals, too. That's right. Just so you know the difference, folks. We're not telling you to remove every single knife that you see the second you, you have it in your hand. That's right. Now, what I think we should, what I think it's important is important to do know is that in normal times, you know, you shouldn't, of course, push a knife in further in, or you shouldn't remove it, but you should pack around it and see if you can apply some pressure from the sides. Protect it. To to protect it. So that's one thing that you should do. Now, of course, normal times is not what you and I talk about. Not generally. You know, now, the. Uh, what this strategy I just mentioned is going to give you time to get the patient to the hospital, but what if there are no hospitals? And you know, you're going to have to transport your victim to your base camp in a survival setting, and you're going to have to remove the knife. Can't person can't walk around with it for At the rest point, of the right, life. Right, exactly. Let me just give a little hint. Uh, a couple of things that might be useful to pack around it, uh, maybe towels or clothing. If you have uh, something that's uh, like a jacket or a couple pairs of jeans, something that's bulky 
Um, you might even be able to uh, take uh, pillows, small small pillows, not necessarily the big ones, and pack around it. If you have some duct tape, you can wrap around the stuffing or padding that you've placed and make sure it doesn't move during the transportation of the patient right. to the hospital. You want to stabilize that padding so that stabilizes the knife. You right. don't want to move it. Exactly, exactly. And and so basically your your goal then is to get the patient to a setting where you have control right. and where the bulk of your materials are. Exactly. You know, so you have to have, of course, plenty of dressings. You want to have tourniquets. You want to have clotting agents ready for use. Now, wounds from firearms are, are more variable, obviously, than knife wounds and much more problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, a stabbing incident is an example of a penetrating inf- injury, but it's unlikely to perforate through the body. Exactly. Well, there's a limited depth. I mean, if you have a large knife, it may go in as, as long as the blade is, but most people don't carry around 8 or 10 inch blades. Exactly. You know, they carry 3 five six inch blades so that is going to be your limitation of the depth a bullet there is no limitation right it's it is limited limited by its velocity, velocity and mass right. basically exactly. the kinetic energy remember we we talked about this just recently yep. that the kinetic energy the energy that the bullet uh, transfers to the body when it strikes it is the mass of the of the bullet times the velocity but the velocity squared and so the the speed of the bullet is the most important major. right most most major uh aspect of the damage that's going to be caused and by and the way it that could move around right. it's not necessarily going to go in a straight line by the way that formula i mentioned is divided by two We're divided <laughs> by two yes <laughs> all right um let's see uh it's, it, so therefore what i'm trying to get at is that a bullet wound can easily go through the body depending yep. on on what it hits. Mm-hmm. It's important and and the type of bullet. And it's important to look for exit wounds. And these could be even larger than the entry wound, not always, but many times they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, rifle rounds have a higher chance of passing through the body because of their higher velocity. And the handguns, however, have a tendency to deform more, and that slows them down, but cause more damage because they become wider as they sort of mushroom. Now, of course, you would need to expect dirt and clothes, other debris to have been pushed in the wound by the bullet, right? Sure. Uh, or even a knife would do that. In other words, these wounds are dirty. Dirty, dirty, dirty. Dirty, dirty, dirty. So you might need <laughs> antibiotics. Make sure you have a good supply of antibiotics. We've talked about that, fish antibiotics, things like that, uh, to prevent infection. Now, a gunshot and some knife wounds can cause significant trauma to soft and bony tissues. And it's one place where, and one place where it's going to be life-threatening is in the chest where rib fractures, lung damage, and tearing of the heart muscles or major blood vessels is likely. So let's talk about let's talk about rib fractures to begin with. You've got 12 pairs of ribs. They're numbered from top to bottom. These are sometimes characterized as true ribs, false ribs, and floating ribs. Your true ribs are from the top, you know, from your shoulder down, I guess, or, or clavicle down. Um, the ribs in back of the clavicle start at number one and they go down. So one ribs one through seven connect via uh, flexible connective tissue called uh, cartilage to the breastbone. The false ribs actually don't connect to the breastbone, but they connect to the cartilage of the seventh rib. So they sort of go straight up 
to the seventh rib. Right, the curves. Right. Now, the 11th and 12th ribs actually float in front. They have no connection to the breastbone whatsoever. Now, all ribs, however, connect to the spine and back. Mm -hmm. Ribs are also connected to each other by muscles called intercostal muscles. And rib fractures, usually caused by trauma, uh, most often involve the middle ribs. Now, if a rib is broken, several signs and symptoms are going to be likely to appear. You can suspect a rib fracture if you note uh, a painful area, sometimes with a bump or a dent even, at the site of impact. Increase, increased pain with pain, uh, breathing or movement. Uh, bruising of the chest or the back mm-hmm. over the ribs. Uh, a grating sensation or sound when fractured bone ends sort of rub against each other now you can use the stethoscope over the area you you really be, be able to see it smell uh to smell it to <laughs> i know a rib fracture when i smell it <laughs> all right when you hear pretty, it that was pretty funny hear it okay uh and also people will be splinting which when you splint that that's you're tensing your muscles in an effort to decrease pain because of the movement of those muscles mm-hmm. Now, in uncomplicated single fractures, there's often no change in the appearance of the chest wall itself. I mean, in the past, we used to treat these with a binder or a rib belt, I think is what it was called. And this method actually relieves some discomfort, but it's actually thought now to cause much more harm than good because it prevents the ability to take deep breaths. And you can get pneumonia. That's right. right. You have to fully inflate your lungs to avoid pneumonia areas of lungs which are collapsed right you need to bring trouble need to bring air way down deep in your lungs guys yes let's all take a deep breath right now (gasps) all right (sighs) see you just inflated the (laughs) absolute edges or borders of your lungs which you may not do unless you actually are doing exercise take deep breaths that's what they do in yoga everyone take a yoga class today don't breathe so deeply (laughs) that you get dizzy though <laughs> now, slow deep. Breath. So, what do they do now? Some practitioners will uh, place the arm on the affected side on a sling, and they'll put padding between the arm and the ribs so that there's protection, and that actually gives people some conf- the victim some confidence that you know that they'll be okay. They're going to be very, very sensitive in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, alternatively, uh, the patient could hold a pillow against the rib to support themselves during, uh, let's say, deep breathing or coughing. Uh, ibuprofen, cold packs, these are helpful for pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might be surprised that you, uh, to know that your patient will probably sleep more peacefully lying with the injured side down because it pro- provides a little bit of support. Now, more serious or multiple rib fractures will present with uh, possibly major symptoms like uh, rapid shallow breathing, a rapid heart rate, a bloody cough, that's known as hemoptysis, H-E-M-O-P-T-Y-S-I-S, uh, an irregular appearance at the site of the injury, as, as I mentioned before, and decreased or unusual movement of the chest wall on the effective side. If the lung is collapsed, that side of the chest wall is not going to inflate. Now, if you have multiple rib fractures, they're usually going to occur in a, roll, in a row. This injury is called a flail chest, and it can be identified in a specific way by placing one hand on each side of the chest and observing the movement while during breathing. Now, the uninjured side rises during inhaling, as it normally would, but paradoxically or unusually, the flail injury 
area, those those ribs that have been, the segments of ribs that have been broken will actually fall. They'll go in. That's because the loose rib segments are pulled into the chest cavity when you inhale. And the lung, as a result, is usually bruised and gets less oxygen to the body. And without, in a flail chest, without mod, really modern respiratory support and perhaps sometimes surgical intervention to stabilize those ribs, uh, your patient is unlikely to survive. Now, rib, danger, uh, rib fractures are most dangerous if a jagged bone punctures organs in the chest, such as the lung. Now, air. Those are like their own little knives. Sure, exactly. You know, right. Piercing, and it's like having a bunch of fragments of broken glass in there, really. Absolutely. They and, can poke, poke other things. And that's bad. Air that enters the chest cavity, then through the puncture, as a res- or through the puncture in the lung, they instead of. It's staying in the lung, the air. The air goes into the actual chest cavity that holds the lung. And this can causes a condition known as a pneumothorax. As more air fills the chest with every breath, there's going to be more pressure in that cavity that's going to prevent the lung from filling up with air again. Right. Now, although a person with a very small pneumothorax will complain of pain with breathing or some shortness of breath, the condition sometimes resolves on its own. The air absorbs. Uh, of course, some oxygen would be helpful. Uh, it, however, could progress to something called a tension pneumothorax, usually caused by significant trauma or penetrating wounds. Uh, the uh, let's say a, a, a trauma that wouldn't be penetrating would be let's say if you were hit by a bullet but had body armor. Right. And so, but that could fracture your ribs. The ribs could go into the lung. Right, but and, nothing went inside. Yeah, exactly. The skin wasn't pierced. Yes, exactly. Now, so this in this circumstance, besides the symptoms that I mentioned previously, the victim is going to have an increasing sign of lack of oxygen. That's called cyanosis. The lips and the the uh, fingertips, other areas are going to become vaguely bluish. Right. Uh, the veins on the neck will be distended. There'll be signs of shock. There'll be uh, sometimes the trachea, the your voice box will actually move to the side opposite where the injury was because mm-hmm. it's filling up with air in in the injured side like a balloon. and moving things over right, to the right. side now like if, a balloon inflating right now, visually you can imagine that's happening right if a lung collapses and you use a stethoscope you'll either hear crackling noises like rice krispies or sometimes you won't hear any any breath sounds at all on the affected side now, with the tension pneumothorax from a rib fracture, you might consider something called emergency needle decompression. Now, this is something you should only attempt if it's absolutely clear that's what the patient has and the patient's going to die without action taken on their behalf. Now, to do this, what you're going to do is you're going to use gloves, you're going to clean the area of the chest on the affected side, and you're going to do it in a specific place. You're going to do it above the third rib. If you uh, go Start down from, from the... the co- Clavicle. The, right. Start from the clavicle. And right in the middle count of clavicle. Down. Yeah. Go to the midclavicular line, go down, and it's going to be pretty much midway between the center of the collarbone and the nipple, and probably one inch or maybe a max, maybe two inches from the border of the breastbone on that side. Now, you would use a 14 gauge decompression needle. That's what I think you have in your yes, kit, we right? Do. Yep. Uh, and you enter the skin just above the rib because the blood vessels nerves and all that travel just below the rib so you want to enter just above the third rib and you want to enter it at a 90 degree angle you're going to go deep enough the needle should be probably about three inches long go deep enough to hear a pop and 
a hiss will probably start as air starts passing through it you're going to hear a hiss just like popping a balloon right and this should allow the lung to inflate and in these um decompression needles are actually come with a catheter basically a tube plastic tube that is fits as a sleeve over the needle outside of the needle and so once that happens and you you know you see that air is coming out then you take the needle out and you leave the catheter in right it's like having an empty tube in there there you go and that allows air to escape now many are taught to place a valve of some sort Mm -hmm. sometimes called a flutter valve over the catheter once placed now this is meant to prevent air from returning to the lung cavity now there are, uh, are vented chest seals that are useful like asherman and hyphen and things like that that would also have the the benefit not only would they uh ha- allow the catheter to be kept in place right but they Stabilize also have it. they also have this little valve that allows air to go out of the lung but not to go back in right so this might be a, a good good thing to do as a matter of fact you definitely need it if there's a penetrating trauma because you already have a hole there and with a penetrating trauma like a stab or a gunshot wound that can cause a pneumothorax attention pneumothorax they call that a sucking chest wound in in plain english and in this case you use a chest seal like the asherman or hyphen fox seal or other others vented is the key yeah vent a vented the word vented on those chest seals is the key and you may need to put one of these in the front and one of these in the back right again we're we're not ignoring the exit wounds that's right in this situation either exactly your goal in general is to provide a way for the air to escape from the chest cavity but not to go back in right and there are many commercial vented chest seals available you could but if you don't have that you could improvise one by taking a four to six inch square of plastic wrap or other airtight material some people have even suggested you a use... credit card, but I think that's too small. Uh, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. Well, plus, it doesn't seem... seem um, I, I can't imagine that making a flap. A plastic bag, Ziploc bags. Um, plastic wrap is probably too thin, um, but I would say a Ziploc bag would have enough uh, thickness. Right, exactly. Now... So you have three sides that are taped. You have the open and a fourth side that's not taped, and that serves as the valve and allows air to escape and the lung to inflate while not letting black air back in. Now you have to realize in normal times there is much more to be done. You place a chest tube. You have to put a suction system in. Inflammatory bloody fluid is likely to oxygen. accumulate in many lung wounds. Right. You could possibly rig, I guess, a drainage system to prevent too much fluid from preventing adequate air passage. Uh, a rubber tube connected to a jar just before the patient may perform this duty poorly, by my say, by using gravity. But it's not going to be as effective as suction systems and respiratory support available at the local hospital. It's important to accept that a tension pneumothorax will be difficult to recover from in austere settings. During the Civil War, chest wounds carried a 72% death rate. Be realistic in your expectations. Okay, let's bring Jim Rawls back. Jim Rawls is an internationally recognized authority on family disaster preparedness and survivalism. He was formerly a U.S. Army intelligence officer. He's now a fiction and nonfiction author as well as a rancher. He's a lecturer and the founder and senior editor at survivalblog.com, the Internet's first blog on preparedness. 
And, you know, we had Jim on not too long ago to talk survival, but today we're going to talk about his latest book, Land of Promise, and the novel idea of a Christian homeland. Jim, thanks for coming back on. The reason why we have you on today, besides to hear words of wisdom, which you always have plenty of, is to talk about your latest book, which is called Land of Promise. And it's, I think, a very unique book. There are a lot of threats to liberty, uh, both us as Americans and Christians, and we're confronted with, I think, challenges every day. What do you think? Oh, I agree. Uh, That's why I really felt strongly convicted to write that novel. It's both a think piece on individual liberty and a call to, to action uh, to encourage the establishment of some Christian homeland nations around the world. They really are needed. There's so much Christian persecution going on right now. And what are needed are some nations that can, can both physically accommodate refugees and, more importantly, to simply issue passports to refugees so that they'll be able to get along uh, to move along to third countries. One of the problems that a lot of people that are in, under persecution in Islamic countries, they don't have the any way to get out of the country they're in. It's amazing because that country doesn't want them there, yet there really is no mechanism that, for them to leave and go somewhere else that they, they might be more welcome and, and be more safe. So they're actually in a, in a situation where their lives may be in danger in a land that doesn't want them, but that they have no legal way of leaving. Right. So that's what Land of Promise is all about. It's about the establishment of a fictional country about uh, 30 years in the future. It's called the Alemi Republic, and that's a little triangle of land that's currently disputed that sits uh, between the borders of South Sudan, Kenya, and Ethiopia. That little patch of land is, is basically a piece of scrubland that's really good for nothing more than single grazing. And I chose that piece of land in the fictional storyline because there are very few places on Earth that any government is going to want to give up. The basic rule of every sovereign nation is you never grant any sovereign territory. If you look at recent history with what happened to the former Yugoslavia, when that fell apart, there was a free-for-all, and governments really tried to avoid that kind of situation. So I think it would only be a piece of territory that is in contest. In this case, it's a long-standing territorial dispute between South Sudan and Kenya, and I showed as being kind of the pretty way out for both nations so that they could resolve the border conflict but yet not lose face in the world of nation-states. You wouldn't want to lose face and suffer any kind of diplomatic repercussions. So it's best that it would be a a disputed territory. There are very few places that would be like that really anywhere. You've taken us down, you know, usually familiar roads, uh, you know, with locations in Canada and the U.S. in your Patriot series. And it's sort of interesting that you were able to figure out this little area of land that might actually be uh, up for grabs. How did they actually obtain this land? How did the the founders of the Elemi Republic obtain this land? Did they buy it? Did they... No, it was, it was granted to them in the fictional storyline. Uh, basically, they approached the presidents of both Kenya and South Sudan, who in, both in the novel and in real life are Christians, 
and approached them and said, well, here you have this intractable dispute between your two countries. The, uh, a wonderful diplomatic way of ending it would be to simply grant that territory instead. And that way you wouldn't have to be granting it to your neighbor and lose face diplomatically. It would provide a wonderful place of refuge for Christian re- uh, refugees, as well as create a huge influx of cash into the region that would benefit both countries, that uh, both of the neighboring countries, both South Sudan and Kenya, because of the massive infrastructure that would have to be built in this very remote area. There would be, have to be roads built and airports and pipelines and power transmission lines and, and the whole works. So it would, it would all that money pouring in to create a new nation, it would definitely benefit the economies of the neighboring nations. So who is allowed to live in the Alemi Republic? Uh, Germany wants to know if it accepts Syrian refugees. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be designed for Christian refugees from all nations. So rather than uh, having any divisiveness over race or any uh, divisiveness over politics, the only real uh, defining factor would be someone's religious faith. So Islamics would not be invited, but it's designed as a refuge for Christians and for Messianic Jews. I think it's realistic to think that a nation could be formed along those lines, simply because there's so many Christians looking for a nation of refuge. Because this fictional nation would also be a nation without any taxes, a truly libertarian nation, it would be very desirable for people to obtain a second passport for that nation, and that's what could finance virtually the whole budget of the nation, would be selling passports to people who are not refugees, but for people who are looking for tax freedom. The reason why I'm so interested in the book is because I've actually been thinking about this for a while now, and I didn't think, and I've never heard anybody else really talk about it until I saw your book. I think for a lot of your readers, it's going to be like a V8 moment, like they're going to smack their forehead and say, I could have had a Christian homeland, you know, and (laughs) I'll tell you that in and of itself, just the Christian homeland is pretty novel, but, but the Alemi Republic is also a libertarian republic. Am I correct? Yes, it's a nation with no taxes whatsoever and very few regulations. It's as close to a true libertarian nation as you can come, where there's no police, no prisons, no standing army. There's just a citizen's militia, and every adult citizen will have the power of arrest. will be a, a self-policing country. And only major crimes would be punishable by law. Anything lesser would be just handled by church discipline or by social shunning. I think it's a, it's a realistic approach, especially for a frontier nation, because a small frontier nation is organized in such a way that everyone has to depend on their neighbors because it's so lightly populated in such a remote area and where people are, are dependent upon each other. People have to live in a way where they can get along. And if they can't get along, they're simply going to have to leave the country because they won't be able to exist in terms of they're, you know, earning their daily bread. Now, speaking of not getting along, in, in your book, there's a worldwide Islamic caliphate, which I assume does not get along with the Alemi Republic. 
we're heading there. I mean, I think it's prescient, your idea of the, the worldwide Islamic caliphate, because I, I think we're heading there, although I think we're going to have two competing caliphates, one Sunni and one Shiite. Right. How's your caliphate born? Uh, well, I, I took the, the literary license of creating a new Islamic group that I refer to as the Thirdists, where essentially the Sunnis and the Shiites agree to disagree and bury the hatchet temporarily for the sake of creating a caliphate so that with their combined forces and not fighting amongst themselves, which they're so good at, they would be able to actually make a caliphate happen. Now, again, that's just literary license. I don't actually predict that. But if that were to happen, it would allow a global caliphate to be formed much sooner than uh, would normally happen. Uh, So for the sake of making a a dramatic story and putting it in the near future, I actually showed them as bearing the hatchet, as it were. What's it like to live under the Islamic caliphate? Well, uh, basically the same, where Christians are treated as as second-class citizens. They're subjected to a very heavy... Uh, tax. It's called a jizya. Uh, under the jizya tax, uh, you, you lose about 20% of your income, and anyone who is under that form of diminitude, they have no political voice whatsoever, they have very few job prospects, and they're heavily taxed, because that jizya tax is in, in addition uh, to any other normal uh, municipal tax. I show life under the caliphate as being very brutal and repressive for anyone who is not Islamic. Under the global Islamic caliphate, the living conditions and the standard, the standing, the standard of living for Christians will be gradually declining year after year after year to the point where they're basically no better than slaves. And some are slaves, especially women who are treated as sex slaves. The current caliphate, ISIS, uh, has as its goal the ex- extinction of Christianity. Is that the goal of your Islamic caliphate? Yes, in the long term. But in the short term, they recognize the technical skills that a lot of Christians have. And they also look at basically everyone on the planet as uh, beasts of burden, where they're an asset to be exploited before they're exterminated. So it's something analogous to what happened in Nazi Germany with the Jews. Almost exactly uh, what you would see. And, and the conditions there are not dissimilar to what some Christians are living in in some Islamic countries today. As a matter of fact, minus right. the jizya. There's already, there's already a, a jizya tax in a lot of oh. countries, and there's a lot <laughs> of systematic persecution. Uh, there's the whole works. We're just seeing it on a small scale now. The frightening prospect is to see a global caliphate where, say, two-thirds of the world's population and three-quarters of the world's landmass is under Islamic control. The other nations would have to be beholden to the caliphate because the caliphate would also control virtually all of the world's oil supply. So they, they basically would have to kowtow to the caliphate. Given that we Christians have a little patch of land as a homeland, and the caliphate is so large and so extensive, does it still have designs upon the Alemi Republic? Yes, in fact, that's why I showed the beginning stages of a a war against the Islam against the Alemi Republic in the first book, and it's just the first book of a 
a planned six-novel series. Part of that was for the sake of drama and part to show that with modern fifth-generation warfare, even a very small nation can defend itself quite admirably in the face of a much larger opponent. Cyber warfare and uh, resistance warfare in the 21st century will see very mismatched opponents with very surprising outcomes. Obviously, the Lemmy Republic doesn't have squadrons of fighter jets, am I right? Or it's a basically everyone yeah, has well, small arms? Not, uh, not collectively. And in, in fact, um, one of the things that I showed was uh, private ownership of things like a military aircraft and artillery pieces and tanks and armored personnel carriers. They actually are surprisingly affordable, especially if you're using 20th century technology military surplus vehicles. It's not beyond the, the realm of fiction to think that if you had a country where it was legal to do so, that people would actually be able to arm themselves quite heavily. It would make that citizen's militia a very formidable force. Well, I think that Land of Promise sounds like a very promising novel, and I want to make sure that they get a copy of Land of Promise. Where could they find it? Well, if they just go to my website at survivalblog.com, they'll see an ordering link in the upper right-hand corner where you see the book cover of Land of Promise, or they can also order it from Amazon.com. It's available both as an ebook and as a print-on-demand paperback. Well, make sure that you go to survivalblog.com to get your book because you'll get a lot more things to think about besides just the novel. If you go there, there's lots of great articles, a lot of terrific information there. And Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with uh, us today. Thank you, Joe, and may God bless your listeners. Well, thank you, Dr. Bones and Jim Rawls for that interesting and educational interview. This has been the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and, of course, Jim Rawls. We will see you again next Saturday or Sunday every week until the end. Bye-bye. Bye.